the expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Story Behind the Song the Consequence Podcast Network series where I interview the iconic artists behind the most iconic songs of the past few decades. I'm your host, Peter Chidi, and each month I dive deep into conversations with your favorite musicians of all time to get insights into the creative journeys behind their most popular and lasting songs. I also ask each artist about one of their personal favorite deep cuts from their own catalog. And in the process, these living legends reveal frequently surprising never before discussed details about these songs and their creative journeys, as well as candid reflections about their personal triumphs and challenges. In this episode, I speak with Alex Ebert, lead singer, songwriter, and resident shaman of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, the pioneering hippie-inspired outfit that broke out in 2009 with a fresh sound that was difficult to pin down. Ebert, via his alter-ego messiah character, Edward Sharp, brought back a new earnestness and authenticity to music with country-inspired folk pop, a sound of collective claps and hollers that inspired countless other groups ranging from the Lumineers to Of Monsters and Men. Edward Sharp's signature song that started it all is Home, of course, an endearingly earnest anthem and ode to love and pure joy. The song is already iconic, a streaming staple that is instantly recognizable by its whistles and opening indelible lyric, Alabama, Arkansas, not to mention its mid-song confessional by Eber to then-girlfriend and bandmate Jade Castrinos, who co-wrote and sang on the song. We also discuss Alex's pick, his decidedly very different and very haunting and beautiful song Truth from his first solo album, Alexander. Truth is a song that Alex wrote as a companion piece to home and a confessional to his fans about it. So take a listen as we dive into the story behind the song with Alex Ebert of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. Alex, great to see you. Good to see you. Yeah. 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 So where are you today? Uh, New Orleans. Yeah. And that's, uh, and, and that's your studio, right? Yeah. Is this, this, the studio, uh, it was the old, uh, post office back in the, uh, twenties, uh, yeah, thirties, forties, fifties. And then it was, um, then it was something else. And then it became studio. Yeah. Uh, the REM, uh, manager built this studio in like the late nineties. Very cool. So did REM record there? 
You're, uh, yeah, I think so. I don't know. Okay, but Arcade yeah. Fire and U2, I think. Yeah, did. yeah, U2 uh, was here when I was here. Uh, Arcade Fire, I, uh, you know, winning them lives here in New Orleans. Okay. Uh, but there's also, I mean, it's like, you know, Dr. John and all of the storied New yeah. Orleans positions, cash money. You know, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's locally famous. Yeah. Good for you. And, and it's your place. Yeah. 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 I bought, I was going to get a house eight years ago. I was like looking for a house and I was like, oh, and I'll be able to record at the studio. And they said, no, nah, the studio is going to be for sale. I was like, well, maybe I'll get the studio instead. <laughs> yeah. But then the house next door opened up. And so, uh, you know, I got, I got lucky. I'm spread thin. I'm like, I can't, I can't go out to eat, but, uh, but I'm happy. Yeah. I think you're doing okay. You have so many different pursuits that are going on. Yeah. And, uh, so Alex, it's really a pleasure. Um, I have followed Alex's music from the very beginning. Always loved it from the very beginning that I knew when he was Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros. And he had a life before that too. We'll talk about that a little bit. But in today's story behind the song, we're going we're gonna to talk about two of Alex's songs. One of them is probably the best known song for Edward Sharp. And that's the song Home, which has really become such a kind of an anthem sing-along for so many people. And we'll get it. We'll dig deep into that. And then the second song is from Alex's first solo album, Alexander. And that's the song Truth, which is another great song. And Alex, without getting too deeply into those yet, I think you, you had told me that they're companion pieces in a sense. Yeah. 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 And it's in a way. Um, so obviously home came before truth. Truth was 2011. And I think home I wrote in 2007. Um, and, uh, yeah, I could, well, I guess I could tell the story of the arc between them. Uh, you know, 2009, the first Edward Sharp album comes out, home comes out. It slowly starts to become this sort of anthem. Um, I remember playing Coachella the first time and just being like, that's why I wore my Coachella sweatshirt. Today. Oh yeah. I, I saw you at that concert. I, I was you in the saw, crowd. I was in the that crowd. The first I, one? The first one, yeah. Oh, wow. Yep. Yeah, that was, that was amazing. I mean, it was just like, I'd never played in front of 40,000 people. It was just like, it was just wild. There's a funny story too about that, uh, an incident right before we started. But uh, the whole thing was very sort of wild and, uh, and it started taking off. And so Home kind of ended up representing the band. You know how that happens with a, with a hit song, right? Um, and the rest of the album, People are like, yeah, yeah, it's sort of background noise. And Home was like this central feature. And because Home is this like kind of love song about friendship and it's like super positive and it's just earnest. And, you know, to me, that was the most punk rock thing I could do, by the way. back then. Like I was a punk rock yeah. guy. And at yeah. the time in 2007, it was like, what is the most punk rock thing I can do? Oh, it's being earnest. It's being unironic. It's being unsardonic. It's be, it's like being a child and sharing with an actual smile. When I used to be on stage, I would refuse to smile. Like if you saw me and I'm a robot, you never saw me smile unless I was bleeding. And, or, or I just like ate, a, like I just jumped in a garbage can. But like, other than that, you wouldn't yeah. see me smile. And I was conscious of like intention, like not smiling. And so for me, just like doing this thing, it was this big sort of effort and to be 
uh, earnest. And so that's when everyone saw and they're like, oh my God, you're this like, you know, like really happy hippie band. That's what you are because home is that. And so that's you and everything else fading in the background. Now, for me, the reason how I got to home, like if you listen to the rest of the album, the, the first line of the album is literally, I was only five when my dad told me I'd die. That's the first line of the album. It's all about death. Uh, <laughs> there's a song about my friend dying. There's another like, oh, I could die, 40 day dream. Everything is like black water is about uh, the uh, stripping land from Native American. Like there's all of this like heavy, the, the, the desert song is about killing my father, like, which I didn't actually do in real life, but you understand. But all of that got put away, right? So all of my shadow, all of my shadow work, all the shit I had to do in order to get to the celebration, because to me, the celebration doesn't just come, that's bypass, that's spiritual bypass. And to me, this celebration is the confrontation with the darkness and the embrace of the totality, the, the total experience, right? So I started to recognize that these fans weren't grasping that because they were just seeing home. And so when I wrote truth, it was in frustration and like, I wanted to draw people's attention and I, it was almost a confession. That's why it starts with the truth is that I haven't shook my shadow. And, um, and that's, that's, that's me speaking to the fans of home, basically of Edward Sharp. It's like, you guys, like, I want you to know I'm not who you think I am. I'm not this like super happy all the time, uh, fucking whatever, you know, I don't know what it is you think is going on, but like good vibes only is not my vibe. <laughs> well, yeah. well, you know, it's interesting because, uh, we, we've actually known each other for a long time because, yeah. you know, back in the early days, cause I did reach out and I'm in the media tech world and you're very complex in a positive way. And I'll touch upon some of the things, but you're a multifaceted guide, including being very tech forward. So you were at a, you were at this media tech conference one time and we sat down and you were sharing an idea for this new, this new entity that you were starting. That was about, I think it was had to do with like elements of artistry that fans could share in. And it was called scraps at the time. Um, but I, I want to touch about just a couple things to ground everybody before we get in deeper, because in this episode, we're going to talk about those two songs, which are wonderful songs. And, and I know them so well. And up until I did a little bit more research on you, I didn't realize the death undercurrent at all. And I know your music. So it was really surprising to me and it's fascinating to me. And then the way you just tied it together with truth. Um, but you are, um, you know, you, have your music, Edward Sharp. You have four albums. You have a couple solo albums. I didn't realize this. You're a Golden Globe winning musician with the best original score for a Robert Redford movie. You wrote a Tony Award nominated song for the SpongeBob SquarePants Broadway musical. So you're this, you've written numerous scores and you continue to do that. You were just featured in the New York Times this month um, as this philosopher King, uh, that's a separate part it's, but it's not separate. Like, as you were saying, you tie into all these things that you haven't shaken your shadow and you get into that in your, um, your newsletter that's available on Substack called, uh, let's see, it's called the bad guru, bad guru, <laughs> but you were featured in New York times 
like yeah. a major feature story just a couple of weeks ago that you didn't even allude to me before. And so I dug that up, but everybody should go out there and check that out. And then you're a philanthropist uh, doing a number of different things, which I thought was really cool. Uh, you have one organization, probably more called Big Sun, which is a nonprofit that's focused on, I guess, housing and things like that in various places around the world. And your first is Avalon Village in Detroit. I want to hopefully spend a little time on that too. But there's all these things that you do. And so there's a lot of complexity to it. And I want to dig into that. So I don't even know where to begin. Let's start a little from the beginning then. You touched upon your father. Yeah. But tell us, a, just we'll go kind of rapid fire through your being a kid and growing up, what brought you to music, all of that. Yeah. Um, okay. I'll, I'm going to give, I, I'm inspired to give like a rapid fire sort of thing. So when well, I was like two years old, <laughs> I had a, I had a, a statue of, uh, of what I thought was Pavarotti, uh, but it was actually a statue of the Buddha on my shelf. And I called him Pavotti. It was like my favorite thing. My dad's, my grandfather was this very famous uh, opera director from German. Um, and he fled and all that, all, all of that. And his story is fascinating. So my dad would listen to three things in the house. He'd listen, he'd blast opera and Beethoven. Um, he would blast new age music, like Vangelis, like chariots of fire, that type shit. So I had this classical music, this new age sort of synth, like, and that Vangelis stuff is incredible. Mm -hmm. And then he would play Willie Nelson and Johnny Cash. So that was my, that was my palette. And, um, you know, I didn't hear the Beatles until I was 14. I, I didn't listen to anything other than those things were his, and they would be in the background. And in the foreground for me, by the time I was seven, I found rap. And for me, rap was like, that was my music. Um, and so focusing on lyrics and pressing play and rewind and going, you know, and all of that. When I was like nine, I started a little rap group. Uh, then I started another one when I was like uh, 13 called Tribal Colors because me and my friend, he was black. And we're like, oh, yeah, it's a white and black guy, blah, blah, blah. Then I, you know, we had like an A&R guy come to me. He's like, oh, yeah, we're going to kink up your hair and we'll go shopping and get you like the proper outfits. <laughs> And I was like, this is weird. So I lost faith in sort of rap for a little while. And I was kind of in limbo. And in that interim, still loving sort of rap, um, but feeling like I needed to just try something else. I just got a little beat machine after I dropped out of college. And I started something that I called I'm a Robot uh, with some friends. And, um, and it was like early I'm a Robot was actually like, similar to my most recent solo album, it was like some weird synth hybrid hip hop thing, like musical hip hop thing, um, rap thing. People don't say hip hop anymore, but I do. Cause I grew up in the nineties uh, <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, so that, that sort of started that. And then, um, you know, got signed to a major label, yada, yada. Um, and that was a disaster. And so what happened that precipitated Edward Sharp was that I got so disillusioned with, like I started writing songs for reasons. And that was like, like I started writing songs to, to like to be hits. Uh, I remember I, our manager came to me 
I was like, if you guys want to get signed, you got to take it up 18 notches. It's like, what the fuck is 18? What is 18 notches? It's like, fuck you. And I went home yeah. and I remember writing like in that, like that day, I wrote these two songs and they got us um, signed. Like we had a bidding war like a couple weeks later. But that was a slippery slope. And I started writing songs for that reason, like to please or to get on the radio or whatever. And of course it didn't work anyway, but I lost essentially my soul, you know? So a very typical major label story actually. And, um, and by the time I was 26, I was super depressed. In fact, I would basically say I was like, I had so much suicidal ideation going on. I, like, I have to figure something. There's like, I'm going to die if I don't rediscover my spirit somehow. Um, and now I'm a robot at that point had become this like punk rock, fuck you, snarling, ironic thing. And that was my sort of whole milieu. And I realized, and I thought back to like, when was the last time I really felt free? And I kept thinking back and back, no, nah, not then, before then, no, nah, not then. And I went back to when I was five and I was like, what was I like then? And I literally just started acting like I, like that. I just started like pretending to be five, literally. Like I'd walk around my apartment like, ah, 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 and I just like do stupid shit. I, I had to leave everything. I broke up with my girlfriend. I, I left my house. I stopped driving. I got rid of my phone. I didn't have any internet. I like barely did, barely wore shoes. I had a little notepad you could leave on my door, notes and whatnot. And I slowly came back to myself. And that's right when I just started writing the Edward Sharp stuff. And what had occurred to me while I was being five was the music my dad was playing because I hadn't discovered rap yet. And it was that mix of like Vangelis and country music. And so when you hear 40 Day Dream, that's really, to me, that's like this kind of like country swing with like these... Vangelis synths over the top and you know later we added like actual strings and all that but so yeah I just sort of started doing that as a as a life-saving process and I remember the way I started it was I just wrote a song that I remember I was like I'm gonna write a song for no reason it's gonna have no chords it's gonna have no pop format and that like got me back on the path and then um yeah, I feel like I've more or less been on the path ever since. It's just, it's just that once you gain some success and you start getting enticed to repeat yourself, yeah. uh, that same process can start to happen again. So I've taken a break again now. Very interesting. So you're, and then I, I, I we'll get into uh, the actual beginnings of the band, how you chose the name, but what was the first song that flowed out of what the process was that you just described? So essentially the first Edward Sharp song that you wrote? That's a great question. I think it was probably 40 Day Dream. Okay, it was 40 Day Dream. I, I believe it was 40 Day Dream. 40 Day Dream, you know, in my mind, I didn't know any of the musicians at the time. So in my mind, I'm thinking of this. I kept imagining it as this, like, this traveling troubadour. I remember my mom showed me a, a, a story I wrote when I was six. She kept it. I, she showed it to me. It's in my little, little kid handwriting. Once there was a boy who had a crew. Obviously, like I, all my life, all I wanted was like some kind of crew. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, um, and, 
And so in my mind, I was like imagining this troubadour ragtag thing with like 13 musicians. So in the demos, and I still have the demos, I should put them out one day. It's me being like, you know, with my, my voice and pretending to have horns and doing haze in the background and all that shit. And, um, so I was imagining this thing and, um, and yeah, 40 day dream is one of those, one of those, I mean, all those songs, uh, from home to carries on to, um, you know, uh, well, up for below, we, 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 we wrote at, uh, Nico's house, we wrote that, um, sort of up at Nico's house, but yeah, most of the songs was, um, were all me in my tiny, tiny little apartment with no kitchen, fucking no internet, uh, no phone, just like, yeah, just writing songs and finding myself and imagining this future, imagining this future iteration, uh, and, um, and magically it just started to materialize. I'm not magic now. I don't want to be new. No, age. you manifested it. I mean, that's I, the, maybe that, that's the, <laughs> no, but it's a pretty amazing thing because if yeah. you, if you had these, like the, these thoughts of having a crew and the troubadour aspect Absolutely. of it. Yeah, 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 you are the true troubadour from not only having the band with all your, you know, 10 to 12 or 13 or whoever was on stage with you, but also then you had your traveling show or yeah. I don't I, I think it was a traveling show, but it was kind of a tent circuit yeah. kind of thing, which is well, pretty. Let me tell you, let me tell you why that happened. Incident. I mean, you know, I probably manifested, but there might have been an angel out there named Heath Ledger. So Heath was going to put out the album. I don't know if you know that or not, but he, he started a label and he was going to put out the album. We were going to be the first band on his label and we were buddies and um, and he dies. Right. Yeah. And um, and that song Brother is about him on the album. actually. Uh. And, um, cause the night before he died, him and I were talking about, uh, we were going to make a, he wanted to make a film, a musical where him and I played brothers and he's like, and you die in the end. No, no, no. I die. <laughs> I can't remember. I have the text, but, um, it was crushing and he was an inspiration. He still is. I get fucking emotional just talking about it right now. And, um, an amazing artist. He really, he was great. And, um, one thing that he, that I decided to like carry on about his legacy in my mind was in knowing him, the space between ideation and actualization was like super small. It's like he had an idea, let's do it. Uh, and so after he died, I took the last of my money and uh, bought a bus, right? So I get this 1984 American Eagle uh, bus for $9,000, barely works, falling apart. Um, I remember, and, um, and I get a, a, a guy to drive it named Cornfed, and, uh, uh, also on Craigslist and a bunch of us, Heath's friends, the band, we all go on this trip to Marfa, Texas, right? And we're going to play a show in Marfa, Texas, it's the first annual Marfa, Texas film festival. And we all go out there and it's this big sort of like celebration and all of us sort of have Heath in mind. We get to the first show, it's outdoors. There's like 20 people gathered. We're not signed, nothing like that. And within four songs, the police show up and shut it down. And I'm thinking, oh my God, I've spent all the last of my money. This is a sign from the heavens that something is foul. And I was really tripping on this, but I had to just let go. And the only thing we could do, the only places we could play in this tiny little town, because the police were against it, is in the fields, on the train tracks, 
in the parking lots. And so we brought our little, you know, Josh brought his snare drum around his neck and we brought our guitars and we would just play in the town. And that's when I started to be like, oh my God, I'm being shown the vision that I initially had. We're doing it because the show got shut down. We're now doing the whole troubadour thing. And we started playing, like we would just enter these little hotels and play in the lobby. And within a couple of days, we'd gained a little notoriety. And then someone says, hey, you know what? Do you guys want to play a show at this like abandoned uh, bar on Sunday? We're like, yeah, hell yeah, let's do it. So we play that, we, we go set up, 200 people show up all of a sudden and it's packed. And we're, we, we're we, it's like, oh my God, it, it's, it's a resurrection, you know? And we, we start playing and we're four songs in and who shows up? The police, <laughs> they show up and they yeah. say, shut it down. And I remember I look at the police, I look at the audience and I say, well, apparently we have a choice. We can all either go to jail or we can all go home. I think I, I think I reversed that. We all go home or we can all go to jail. And the whole crowd starts going, jail, jail, <laughs> I love jail. it. <laughs> and the police go, the, the cops go, um, all right, all right, all right, just, you know, finish the show. And then we're going to escort you out of town. <laughs> I got so we got you. to play a full show. It was madness. It was sweaty. It was beautiful. And, uh, and then we got escorted out of town. But that, that was all, and all of the footage, you can find it online, the, uh, the footage of us. It's all on Super 8. Uh, 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 I think it's up from below or Edward Sharp Marfa or something. Um, but that experience like solidified and concretized like the whole vision. And, uh, and I tried to stay true to that as much as possible. And, and I never wanted to play any actual, you know, I would play festivals, but not real gigs. And we tried that for as long as possible. And then eventually we succumbed to the, uh, to the success and the, uh, the day-to-day -day grind. But, um, yeah, that was the vision. And then you broke free from it again. And, and then we uh, broke, yeah. And that, that's what that big top was about yeah. is about trying to get back to this idea of like staying in a town for a few days, not just like hitting it and splitting to, to, you know, um, yeah, to, to sort of linger. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's pretty incredible. And when you talk about like, um, to connect and such, obviously you did that in this kind of immersive way with the traveling show. So in the physical environment, but one of the things I mentioned was the tech forward nature of kind of how you think as well. Like you, you think about all this complexity. So at the end, we're, I want to ask you about some of that web 3.0 and getting out of the physical and our lives increasingly in the digital world and what that means for all of us from a humanity standpoint and from an artist standpoint, um, all, all of that. When you talk about, all your things, like you have these videos, you have these songs, you have, uh, if you probably collected videos along the way in a number of places, my God, Alex, you need a documentary. Yeah. There is. Yeah. yeah. No, I know. I've, I've been putting together a little documentary. It's just, um, it's a lot, you know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of, it's a lot of stuff and it's hard to know exactly, um, you know, where the story is, but I have put together a documentary that I've, that I've been slowly, you know, editing and it's, there's, there's a complete documentary, but, um, yeah, the, 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 the process has been, the process has been really beautiful and, um, and, and difficult and, uh, and all that. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to take a, a couple of minute break 
And then we'll be right back with Alex Ebert of Edward Sharp Magnetic Zeros, which doesn't do enough justice because so much more a solo artist, philosopher. So we'll be right back. Okay, we are back and we're going to get into a little bit more and it, digging more deeply into the song home. Um, but you have, uh, tell us about the, the genesis of the band. You told us already about how you... Yeah. You began to write very differently, but how you came up with the name, um, how you met, you know, your initial partner and it, without, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. You tell me how sure. it came to be. Yeah. Um, so the name, I was writing a novel, uh, about a guy named Edward Sharp. And, uh, and then he discovers a mathematics, I discovered a mathematics while writing it. It's, it's, a, a, a mathematics I invented, um, called magnetic zeros. And so I had those two names and immediately I put that together, like Edward Sharp and the magnetic zeros. And, uh, um, yeah, and that's, that sort of set me off on my philosophy and sort well, of. I got to stop you there. How did that come to be that you, this mathematical sort of thing, how old were you? 24. Okay, 24 at the time. Okay. I was an autodidact, you know, I, I never went to university or anything. So I, I was, um, I was going on a tear of learning my, as soon as I dropped out of school, I, uh, I started really wanting to learn, you know, yeah. uh, as soon as I didn't have anyone telling me what to learn, I got, I got voracious and, um, yeah. And, uh, the math, uh, I'll briefly describe essentially it's a gravitational or pendular mathematics where zero is at the center and uh you can just imagine sort of a pendulum swinging across zero depending on the magnitude of zero um so uh and and it's still something that's very central to my um my my thoughts and my philosophy but um uh incidentally uh, a couple years after the band came out i think it was 2012 uh nasa uh figured out how to calculate something about the wind pull on Mars. And they called that math magnetic zeros and they tweeted it at, at us. So, so the math ended up having its own, um, you know, uh, use case, uh, there, but, um, that's wild impacting yeah, yeah. NASA. Yeah. Which was really funny because I don't think they knew that it was a math, a medical idea to begin with, but they ended up creating a math and they called it magnetic zeros. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, I just thought the name was cool the, the character I could get into and what that was all about, but that's, yes, I definitely, yes, we must get into that. Really? That's oh okay. yeah. We have to get into it. Okay. Well, so, uh, you know, at the time I had a fairly severe OCD and, uh, I've since completely conquered it actually, but, um, a lot of the book was me trying to explain to myself why I was hearing voices. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so I have these voices that are saying like these things and I have other voices saying these things, where are these voices coming from? And so it became sort of this existential drama, um, metaphysical drama about these light masters who are sort of the good, you know, spirits, let's say, and, uh, the dark, ma the dark matter, the dark mass, who are these sort of, you know, negative spirits. And they're always trying to sort of communicate down to humanity, but the light masters are losing out. And they're being drowned out. Their voices can't be heard by humanity. So they decide to focus all their voices together on just one individual. 
and, and, you know, the sort of, uh, uh, Jesus type figure. Right. And so they send down a sort of spirit into a body and that body is named Edward Sharp and they're all whispering at him and it's going very well, but then he falls in love and he gets distracted. And they're like, ah, fuck. And he won't listen. He keeps doing all this stuff. They're not, you know, because he's in love. So they send another guy down, but they make sure he's very, very ugly. And no woman would fall in love with this person. No other person would fall in love with this person, but he falls in love. And so finally they're like, okay. And they send down just like a blob. They're like, this is going to work. And, uh, and then, and then that entity falls in love. And, uh, and so they can never reach this, uh, <laughs> this individual. So it's got this, um, this sort of apocalyptic ending, but, um, yeah, so that was the Edward Sharp character and, uh, and he could see in the book, this is 2004. And so string theory had just come out, but I wasn't yet aware of it, but this character could see, um, everything that was matter, uh, everything that is, uh, as composed of these tiny little strings. And I would draw these diagrams of these strings and paste them up on my wall. And, and then I showed them to a friend. He's like, you know, that sounds like, um, some, some new physics that's going on, uh, called string theory. And so I went and I got a book and, uh, uh, sure enough, it was like, you know, it was Lee Smolin, three roads to quantum gravity. And, um, everybody go out there and pick that up. Yeah. Yeah. It's very interesting. And, and the first, oh, I'm sure it is page I opened to was called the, uh, the sound of space is a string. And then the next page was a diagram and it was like identical to the diagrams I was drawing. So I was like, oh my God, this is, this is wonderful. And it set me off, uh, you know, down a number of rabbit holes that I'm still into this day. Um, so when, so when you were the, uh, as part of Edward Sharp, Alex Ebert is Edward because you're Edward Sharp on the, on stage. How much is Edward Sharp, the Messiah figure, Alex Ebert? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, well, let me put it like this. So, so at the time, Alex Ebert for me, uh, was lost, a lost person. And so Edward Sharp was in a way, just a, a vehicle to get back to myself. Um, so I would say that Edward Sharp on stage is just the rawest sort of most courageous expression of myself that I could muster, um, at any given moment. Um, you know, so not really any, well, I'm not being totally honest, I suppose in a song like Jangle, um, you know, or well, specifically Jangle, um, that tells the story of that sort of Edward Sharp character and and I do think that I viewed Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros as a kind of messianic band in the sense that there was an earnestness and a, a, a truthfulness to our, to our spirit that was being subsumed in the culture of cool, in the culture of hip and irony and sarcasm, and, um, and that those aspects of interaction are actually armors. They protect us from the outside, but they also keep us pinned on the inside. And, uh, the whole idea was to create an explosion of that shell, uh, that could feed an openness and, uh, interact and, and, and interpenetrate with humanity again. And, um, listen, I love that. And, yeah. and I, and as I said, I was fortunate to experience that at your, 
Coachella show. Um, I remember it was a, it was an, a sunny, beautiful afternoon, beautiful afternoon. It was the outdoor stage, I believe. And everybody was just feeling positive vibes. Yeah. It was, it was that you had like 50 people on stage in the band, <laughs> you know, it was, it was this amazing, like you could tell it was kind of like what you said, the troubadour, the, you know, the spiritual figure, the shaman on stage. And just, it was just positive energy. And I do want to get into the energy thing, as I said before, at as we get toward the end of the interview, because there's so much, not none of that going on right now. And your thoughts about that. Um, just really quickly, Jade was uh, Jade Castrino, right? That's how you pronounce her last name? Castrinos, yep. Castrino. So she was with you at the very beginning, but when you were generating this idea for Edward Sharp, yeah. and how did you meet Jade? Because Jade is the central character with you on yeah. the song Home. Yeah. So that, that period of my life at age 26, when I started, when I was like making that big turn um, and sort of emancipating myself from 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 cool and um and all of that and leaving a number of like constructs you know that i mentioned um i remember i knew jade because we would have these big parties at laurel canyon and i remember her showing up and she was friends of friends of mine and i would just i was just always like wow her spirit was just like just remarkable just like oozing this this dynamic freedom. And, um, and then the next time I saw her, she was out on this uh, sidewalk smoking a cigarette and she seemed completely depleted of that. And meanwhile, I had just rediscovered my sort of spirit, you know, my, my, my freedom. And, um, and so I remember seeing her and we struck up a conversation and immediately I was like, I, I really want to be friends with this person to, to help. <laughs> I just, I, I had this resonance with her. I was like, you know, there's something I, I saw her before and I'm seeing her now and I'm, and I'm feeling like I know what she's sort of burdened by because we had, you know, discussions I won't reveal here, but like things that she was going through that I had been going through. And so we struck up a friendship that was very fast and very deep. And in fact, when we wrote home, we weren't, you know, lovers, we were best friends. Um, in fact, at that time in my life, I was like, had completely sworn off like actual, like relationship relationships. Yeah. And I knew that I didn't want to be her lover or her mind because I didn't want to ruin the friendship. Mm -hmm. I wanted it to like remain pure, you know, and then say it was the, still the most romantic relationship I had had but it was a friendship. And, um, and so, yeah, we were like, we were like buddies in that emancipatory spirit. And, um, we had a, just an amazing time for about a year and she's, she's at my place. I had already written, uh, the music for home and we had just gone to this park in Echo Park, uh, Elysian Park. And we were coming back and uh, she likes to always point out we were like barefoot and we just trammeled around and we stumbled back into my apartment and I'm playing stuff and I'm playing the song Home, and, which was not yet called Home. There were no lyrics on it. 
and I'm messing around with like da 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 and she's lying on this blow up mattress because I don't even have a real mattress. Uh, and she jumps up and she goes, give me the mic. <laughs> she like, cause she has that kind of energy, you know, like when she has an idea, it's like just pure vitality. And I was like, okay. And I just gave her the mic. She grabs it. She's like, press record. I press record. And she just goes, Alabama, Arkansas. Like she just goes into it. Um, and she, she lays that first line down and that night we just go back and forth. We lay the whole, we all, we lay all the lyrics down. That is that's incredible. Yeah. That really is incredible. Um, so the, the, uh, the, the narrative part in the middle of the song. Yeah. Have the Jade Alexander, you know, that part. Yeah. That's spontaneous or was that scripted? Okay. So that's a great question. That's one of my favorite stories about this song. <laughs> so, uh, in the demo, it's spontaneous that nobody really has heard the demo. So in the demo, it's spontaneous and in reflection of something that had just happened, like right after we recorded those lyrics, I was on a second story, uh, and there's this bougainvillea bush below the second story. And she used to sit in the window smoking cigarettes. And I hear, and I look over and she's not in the window anymore. She had fallen out of the wind of the second story window. Yeah. And so I, I, I run out of the window cause there's this other little ledge and I jump out of the second story, get down to the bush and she's like in the bush, like bleeding. And I pick her up and her cousin is there and we get in a car and we drive to the hospital and uh, she's in the back of the car. And I think she thinks she's going to die or something. She's like, someone have a, give me a cigarette. Like she's going to have her last cigarette. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and, uh, and of course she ended up being okay. Um, but anyway, so I tell that story in the demo and it's impromptu. Then we do the recording with the band, we redo it. And I tell the story and it's okay. And we're going to master the song. Now, if you know the process of mastering, it's the very, very fucking end of the recording process. And once you've mastered, like you don't go back and mess with stuff unless you want to piss everybody off. So we've mastered home a few times, but we're not sure which version is right. We have these different versions. One has a bunch of guitar we call the Vietnam version. And then we have this other version that's more spare. And anyway, the thing that I'm focused on is that story. And it's just not there. So about 3 a.m. Um, before the final master, I start petitioning everyone who's left in, in Nico's house. And it was his, his house and, uh, his, he was, it was his studio. Uh, Nico's our guitar player and he cope, you know, we produced the album together and I start petitioning everybody. Everybody's kind of drunk. Like guys, we have to re-record. We have to re-record that part. You know, we have to re-record some parts of the song. It's just not quite right. And everyone's like, you're crazy. Everyone started telling me like, I remember Nico's girlfriend pulled me over one, like at one point and looked me in the eyes and goes, Alex, you're a good person. I was like, what the fuck? What the fuck are you talking about? She thought, you know, in her mind, I have this insatiable desire to be, uh, to, to, to somehow, you know, like there's some pathology at work that I would want to re-record this thing. But in my mind, it just wasn't immediate. Right. So we go down there again. I convinced them, 
finally, begrudgingly, it's like three in the morning and we do the story again, but this time spontaneously, I add, you know, there's something I never told you about that night. She's like, what? I was like, while you were in the back smoking a cigarette, you thought was going to be your last. I was falling deep, deeply in love with you. And she, when she lets out that, like, what? And when she lets out that, that's all spontaneous. Like, oh, you know, that, that her... is awesome. That, yeah. that, it's wonderful to hear that that was just authentic, that, that it poured out. Cause it certainly sounds that way. Yeah. Uh, but an amazing song. Um, when you, you know, that song is, especially given your background where you were doing a lot of rapping and you said it came out of an earnest place. Like you were, you went into an earnest place. It is. The first time I heard it, and I remember, it's one of those songs that you remember the first time, or at least that I remember the first time. I'm driving down and I hear this song and I immediately liked it. But I think sometimes we're so, are, we try to peg songs, like what kind of song is this, whatever. It is a tough song to like put in a box of what kind of genre it is. You mentioned your kind of country influences, these kind of influences. It certainly, to me, sounds a little bit country influenced, but it's so many different things. And that's part of it, I think, that resonates to so many people, too. It's just this joyous thing, earnest lyrics about this love, right? You know, home is, is, is this person, is home. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And also at the time, you know, there were, there wasn't, you know, of monsters and men, there wasn't uh, Mumford, there wasn't uh, Lumineers. Like you didn't have a reference point for this folk pop thing that would eventually end up exploding and taking over every fucking Honda commercial. You just didn't <laughs> have a sense of that. Yeah. You know, have like, dan, 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 dan. Hey, you didn't have that yet. With yeah. The guitars and all that. So that's why at first home wasn't, a, it wasn't like, everyone's like, oh my God, home was a, massive hit right away it actually wasn't it was not played on on uh, pop radio that much at, especially at first and then in the end you know something like k-rock or something would play it like you know maybe once a week or something because it was it just there was nothing like it and we had recorded it all ourselves on tape it, it didn't sound like if you go today if you go back and listen to home and then you listen to like any of those other bands or even our later albums it sounds like a garage recording, you know? And to me, that porousness is, is part of what I love about it. And it's one of the reasons why I never get sick of it. Like people are always, oh, you must really be tired of that song. I was like, no, even the sound of home is authentic. I was there, we put our fucking fingers on the tape. Like we didn't know what we were doing. We, we, were, we were just being, experimenters and it and it and it still sounds like that you know it's still and, sound. and I remember, earnest i remember the mastering guy very famous mastering engineer who mastered it hated the way it sounded he was just like what 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 is this he, doug Sachs, amazing guy he's since passed away but um and then i remember bringing in like a pro tools recording that was going to be a b-side he's like what is this this sounds great you know and it was just like made in the box no tape we were crushed but I think that there's something about the fact that our fingers, there was a place in time to that song that, um, that still speaks. Well, everything about it really is earnest and authentic. And it's all the things that you had these friends of yours who you brought into the band on stage. You had this spontaneous moment that became the narrative in the song. And, and that's wonderful. 
you have the album cover where everybody's jumping for joy, you know, in the suns, in the desert, you have all of this that comes from the darkness that you had, and it's all this light and positivity. And, you know, again, the Coachella incident or the, the Coachella moment that I had was very special. And everybody in the audience had that special moment. I got to ask you, cause you touched upon it. What was the incident that you had at Coachella before you went on stage? Oh man. So I told you that in my previous musical iteration, I had never smiled. I was always, I had this armor on stage. Yeah. I yeah. was like, because I, you know, that armor is a social protectant. It's a status anxiety protector. Right. And, um, I went on stage at Coachella fully ready to be, you know, like not a rock star. Our whole thing as a band, we would say, we're not rock stars before we go on stage. You know what I mean? We'd be like, we're just kids at a show and tell because we, none of us wanted to experience any of that postured bullshit. But I get in front of 40,000 people for the first time and I fucking panic. And to prove to myself that I didn't give a shit and that like none of this meant anything to me and that I had no social anxiety. Like I didn't care. I picked up the microphone stand before a fucking note has been played and I tossed the microphone stand into the photo pit like that, right? The, the, the stand bounces. It, it, it was, it was miraculous. The, the stand bounces and then comes into the audience and at such an angle that it lacerates the forehead of the, of a guy in the front row. I mean, lacerates like a three inch laceration. He's gushing blood and we have not struck a note. And everyone around him is seeing this. And I believe the cameras turned on him and he's on the jumbo truck bleeding. Right. And I just like, through my desire to protect myself and to be cool and say, fuck, I don't care. Like I just lacerated this dude's head. And it was this amazing reminder for me to get back. And from that point on, literally that was my moment where like, I've never done that on stage again after that. Um, yeah. so anyway, I took off my shirt, I wrapped it around his head, the audience cheered and then we started. Yeah, no, that's wow. Wow. That is, yes, that is very. Not Edward Sharp, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. That, 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 exactly. It was the, the <laughs> but I think I remember, yeah, I'm not sure if I remember that part. One, one, a couple little things, because I like to add personal touches when there is a personal touch. So first of all, lived in Laurel Canyon for years uh, at the top of Kirkwood Drive. What an amazing place. And, and it is immensely spiritual. I felt very fortunate back in the day. That's where I met my wife and we lived up there and it was such a magical place. And yeah. so that's really cool because there's such a wonderful music history of, that comes from that. And there's an energy that comes from the nature there, which is shocking because it's just a couple of minutes from Sunset Boulevard, you know? Uh, and then one thing I, I, I have to point out because it cracks me up still to this day, we saw you at Life is Beautiful with my family because my family and we've been going to music festivals from the very beginning. We're family troubadours where <laughs> we, you know, we love the experience of it all. So we saw you at Life is Beautiful. And of course, my kids who were probably like 15 and 12 at the time, they, they, you know, we went all the way up on stage. You came off stage 
uh, and you started dancing with people and I have a video of you dancing with my daughter and it's just this beautiful, beautiful like moment that she'll never forget. Mm. And it, it was just a really cool thing. That's awesome. Uh, so we just really quickly, cause we already touched upon some of it and I want to get into philosophy a little bit, uh, and your feelings about life. So truth, you talked about it being a, um, uh, this kind of explanation to your fans yeah. uh, or kind of a confession almost to, to your fans. So is that to you because of that, is this song also really special to you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, I can tell when someone's going to come up to me on the street uh, and they look like they, they might say like someone I don't know. And it looks like, okay, someone's going to mention the band. I can tell who's going to say, um, specifically mention truth because the people that mention truth tend to only say one thing, which is thank you. Um, and they come up like, thank you. Like that's their body language. And, um, it always means so fucking much to me. It actually also makes me emotional, but just to have to feel like those kind of important seminal communications in my own personal life um, can translate on a level like that. Like that was a real moment for me, um, truth. You know, that was like, that was an important, important moment for me in a lot of ways started me off on, you know, the bad guru thing in a way is an extension of truth, um, the song truth. Uh, and the content of that song. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a really, a really important, uh, song to me. And, um, and I love that it's important to others as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it's, a if, for those of you out there who haven't heard it, it's from Alex's first solo album, Alexander. And it's, as soon as I heard it the first time, it was amazing. And when I told you at the beginning that w when we met at that media tech conference in Santa Monica many, many years ago now, you actually played that song on top of, I think you were on top of a bus and you had some dancers and it was very, <laughs> it, yeah. it was, it was very mystical. Like it was uh, really, really mystical. Again, you, were, that, you yeah. were like a shaman and the dancers were dancing in a very mystical kind of way. Uh, like it was, it was a, a really cool event for all these like media tech guys, you know, these weren't, these weren't your Coachella type people in the audience. These were a lot of the executive types and they're probably like scratching their head. I was loving it. Like I was totally digging it, but it, it, it was a cool experience. I should say, you know, obviously there's, there's, there's aspects of playing something like that that are just the worst. <laughs> uh, but when an audience, when you can play with awkwardness, there's almost no richer substance in the world for an artist than awkwardness. If you can learn how rich of a substance awkwardness is, how rich of a substance sort of like apprehension is, um, and play with that. I, I really love that because that 
lends itself to the largest trajectory of personal transformation for an audience member to come in uh, not understanding or to come in not expecting or to come in um, even, uh, you know, with your arms crossed sort of denigrating or, or, or assuming um, any of those aspects of mind. And then you can be transformed even in some minimal way by the performance. Like that's, that's my favorite shit, you know, in a way. Yeah. 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 I think that you had a lot of awkward people in the crowd and, uh, <laughs> um, well, and, uh, just because they weren't familiar with the scene at all and it, but people loved it. So that was a cool moment that I remember really, um, you know, vividly too. The song I think was licensed in for Breaking Bad. It was yep. in the final episode, I think, right? So like, you know, it had this pivotal moment in, in there and we could go on and on, but I got to get into your philosophy. So let's take a quick break and okay. then we'll be back with Alex and we'll start talking a little bit more about just his, your wor worldview, um, where you think we are, you know, we, your thoughts to young people, all of that stuff. Hey there, it's Kyle Meredith from Kyle Meredith With. After you check out the latest episode of my show, uh, be sure to check out some of our other great programs on the Consequence Podcast Network, including Standing BTS, a bi-weekly podcast covering all things BTS and ARMY, and The Opus, Consequence's original documentary podcast exploring legendary albums and their lasting legacies. So head to consequence.net to listen to these podcasts and many great others. We're back with Alex Ebert and we just got into two great songs. And now, um, as, as I was talking about at the very beginning, you were just featured in New York times, you about your, all the various pursuits, but that you're very much a philosopher as well. And on Substack, you have a newsletter called bad guru, where you, you get into a lot of the complexity that we've been talking about. So let's talk about that and just give me your thoughts about society as it is today. And then I'm curious to hear your thoughts as an artist and as a creator and with the, tr the transformation that tech is doing to the industry and including getting people deeper and deeper into the rabbit hole of digital life. Yeah. Uh, well, on that note, you know, uh, I've been thinking about that a lot. I actually have an essay that's going to be coming out uh, soon. I don't know when this podcast is airing, but um, there's, there's, so philosophy um, had this amazing uh, instrumental um, purpose around the time of the Magna Carta and through, you know, the next couple hundred years where philosophy was required in order to ascertain what a person was because we had this idea that all men are created equal right those so, those sort of lines and in terms of law well then who are the people that are going to be protected by law and who are the ones that aren't and historically the ones who are have been the slaves or have been some sort of underclass that don't get the full protections of the state. And so the question of like, well, shouldn't everybody get it? And like, yeah, sure. And America is a perfect example of a place that has these lofty aspirational sort of goals, but didn't end up meeting them. We all know that history. Um, and then with the passing of the 14th amendment and the, the, the rights of personhood, 
suddenly now extended to all people, right? So that was like after the Civil War, uh, freed black slaves were also people. Now, of course, they're humans, but now they're people, quote unquote, right? And as people, they get uh, equal protection under the law. So I've been thinking a lot about this in terms of the new digital era. So we all have, and of course, corporations were like, oh, and we're people too, right? And then so you suddenly have this abstractifying of, um, of personhood. And incidentally, and I'll, I'll maybe get into this in a sec, but algorithms now uh, are argued to have personhood themselves. Um, DAOs, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah, decentralized are, autonomous are, organizations. Uh, are being argued to have or, or have in certain states uh, personhood. What's interesting, though, is that us as people, when we're digital, we have no rights of personhood. Now, as, as, as people, we spend, uh, uh, the average American spends uh, close to 12 hours a day connected to some form of media. In terms of um, politics, in terms of economics, what we essentially are increasing, increasingly is just data. Data, there was an article in Forbes that came out recently, data is bigger than oil. It is the um, economic trade. Uh, Facebook earns, I think, 63% uh, meta earns 63% of its earnings from just trafficking in data, trafficking yeah. in, in us, right? So that's, that's an extension of who we are. Now, the argument is uh, from the corporations that they can traffic in our data because they anonymize it. We are not our data, we are people, and our data is not us because they're anonymizing the data and so it's not traceable back to us. But the reality is that 99.98% like of all data sets are retraceable back down to the individual. There was an amazing study that was done uh, out of Europe, uh, not Cambridge, but some other sort of um, uh, university out there. Uh, that that proved all this, and and there's, they have an amazing uh, website. I wish I could remember right now, but maybe we could provide the link, where you can actually type in um, and see how retraceable your data is back down to you just by giving a couple inputs. Um, so anyway, so all of this to say that as we enter Web three, as we enter the completely immersive digital space, where as Zuckerberg says, this is an internet that you are inside of, that you will be inside of. In that space, we have no rights as persons. Mm -hmm. We have no rights as persons. We are technically um, being human trafficked, in my opinion, because what, what we need to do is what philosophy can do now is argue that our data is actually an extension of our personhood and inalienable from us. And that anyone trafficking in our data without our consent is human trafficking. I mean, that it seems outlandish, but as we begin Doesn't to- seem outlandish to me at all. Okay, good. Yeah, because as we get more and more into the space where we're really in it, and that's, our, that's the, the, the crux of our interaction, um, we need to begin to rethink what a person is again for the first time in many hundred years in a lot of ways. And, um, and I think that that is probably going to be the big, um, the big, emancipation sort of effort uh, in the next, over the next, you know, say 50 years, if people start to hip to this, because the problem is, is that if we don't, and we allow ourselves to just to be milked um, 
we're going to end up in a situation where we're effectively, you know, I don't want to conjure slavery, but technically um, we will be the property of someone else. Yeah. Uh, and that someone else, as you mentioned, like the, the meta Facebook, Mark Zuckerberg, who's setting the rules of the game for yeah. where we are, are brought into wittingly or unwittingly. And we're already well on our way into the metaverse and have been for a long time. I mean, what we're doing now is digital, but you know, people who are playing, who are in Fortnite or um, playing their games and spending hours and hours in there, uh, we're all you know, uh, incessantly on our phones, you know, so we're already in a form of metaverse. It's a question how much that's flushed out. The Ready Player One example, like, uh, you know, that's what the fully fleshed out version is kind of like, but is as we get deeper there, one of the things that, really hit me when I was talking to somebody recently was, okay, uh, it was just a recent interview actually with a really cool guy whose name is um, Arun Maney. And he's, he goes by the YouTube handle, uh, Mr. Who's the Boss, and he has 10 million subs and he's this tech philosopher, but tech expert, and he's only 26 years old. He's a really eloquent, cool guy. And we were talking about it, that at, if, and it's already happening. You don't like your life, you're not satisfied your, by your physical surroundings, by the way you look, by the friends you have, by the way you present yourself, by the tangible goods that you have, by the money you make, the job you have, or whatever. Well, welcome to the metaverse where you can define your friends, who you look like, how you want to present yourself, and all that sort of thing, and be, I guess, arguably happier there. And then you increasingly spend more time there because once you take off the metaverse and you're into your real verse, it's you're, there's a shock to the system. And then ultimately for the, for the human brain, will it matter whether you're in a metaverse at a hap, quote unquote, happier state or in the real world? So like, how do you feel about all that? I mean, it's a really, it's just such an interesting topic. So, I mean, you know, for instance, when we dream or even when we um, imagine doing an exercise, all the same synapses fire, right? Our, yeah. our minds don't actually know the difference between quote unquote, the real thing and the dream or the imagination process. Um, so there is an argument to be made, of course, that like happiness is, is just simply contingent on those synapses firing. And the experience of the experience, the experience doesn't necessarily be, need to be tethered to um, a physical world interaction. Um, that said, um, you know, there's an interesting, I mean, this is, this is getting a little into the weeds, but I think it's interesting. There, there is, um, there have been a number of weird studies, uh, King, King Frederick, uh, also in the 1200s, uh, in Germany undertook a weird experiment that could never get done these days where he wanted to see if babies completely deprived of interaction, but well-fed and care, you know, and, and, and shelter, but deprived of all communication. And also one of the stipulations was all touch. If they would still grow up learning the wonderful language of German, right? That he thought that German was baked into the brain and he did this as an experiment. Yeah. The experiment didn't work because all the babies died. And the reason all the babies died was because they weren't, uh, as a uh, Italian sort of uh, uh, historian noted, who was actually there and wrote down, wrote, wrote, wrote about it. 
Um, they died from lack of petting. Yeah. No, they died yeah. from not being fucking touched. Yeah. And I think we have to understand that, you know, I think Elon recently tweeted like, hey, you know, women lose a bunch of their salary because uh, because of actually the pregnancy itself. So what if we created, uh, you know, uh, synthetic uh, uh, wombs and all that? I think God. at some point we're going to end up coming up against the reality that we are embodied beings and that we actually do need uh, physical touch and that haptic feedback may not give that to us. You know what I just saw? I just saw a Cox Communications commercial uh, as I was watching something on t TV. And it was, I mean, it was, it was beautiful in the sense that somebody who was in California who hadn't seen their, their brother in Mexico forever, they were enabled with Cox, gave them like a broadband connection or something like that. But they were hugging each other remotely via haptic suits. You know, and I, I got to say, like, you know, I, I try to be very tech forward and all that, but I, I really and I unfortunately have a 22 year old daughter and a 19 year old son and I've seen them grow up. And so, like, I'm close enough to see impact on the young people around me and stay close to that and listen to enough voices there. But, you know, social media, everybody knows all the issues with social media. And quite frankly, I'm net negative on social media. You know, for what it's worth, I just think that all the FOMO that comes from it, all the, you know, not feeling good about yourself, all, all of those kinds of things because of these artificial lives out there, there's that issue. But as we're increasingly getting into the metaverse and, and just immersing ourselves in digital rather than the physical, that, what does it mean for us to be human? And you had mentioned that experiment. And one of the experiments we used to watch when I was a kid growing up, they had this famous video of chimpanzees one had a mother you know they some chimps had the real mother that were they that was feeding them and nursing them and holding them and all that and then in another cage they had a bunch of other chimps where there was a fake mother where there was just a milk bottle but it was just like a piece of metal so nobody touching them and they ended up those chimps ended up being psychologically just yeah. devastated yeah. so haptic suits are they going to do the trick i don't know i think that like the getting back to the experience of coachella where we saw your we were in the crowd touching flesh going to coachella or any of these there's a reason why people go to these things it's to be the human like interaction physically touching each other and doing all that and those are the memorable moments and are you going to like if you have alex performing a Travis Scott-like show in the metaverse in Fortnite, is that going to have the same impact and lasting staying shared experience? I'm skeptical of that. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm fairly skeptical of that too. Um, and yet, you know, it seems to be where we're headed. I, I you know, the, the island Tsonga, I guess, was uh, recently cut off uh, from, you know, did, from the rest of the world. Um, and, you know, it's like this whole idea of the, um, the infra, the, the, the technological gap between sort of third world countries and, uh, and we got to get them completely connected in this whole thing. What's interesting is when we were making our second album, I had, I, I needed to rent a house and it was in this like kind of hippie area, like upscale hippie place called Ojai outside of LA. Yeah. And um, 
looking for places and there's one place that's more expensive than all the others, but it's smaller, but it looks nice like cabin. And the second line is, uh, you know, cabin, blah, 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 uh, internet, uh, internet free. I was like, internet free. Now this is 2013. Yeah. Like, not free internet. It's more expensive because it's internet free. And then of course I started seeing all of the digital detox stuff and all that. And what I started to develop, and I think it's accurate in the future, the only people who will be able to afford nothing will be the rich. Mm. Nobody else will be able to get off lot, like getting offline will be something you have to, you know, will be a privilege mm -hmm. um, because once everything is connected, it's, it's, you know, you see the only people who can afford a digital detox are the people who can afford a digital detox. And yeah. I, and I, I started developing this idea of like, you know, an outside. And I do think that the festival circuit, um, it may end up being one of the last bastions of that sort of experience. And it'll be interesting to see how much it's, you know, how much people are satisfied with a haptic feedback, you know, goggles on your face, um, experience. Yeah. I really don't know how much they'll, what I can tell you is like, you know, one of the most frustrating things in my life is like <laughs> going to my parents' place or my mom's house, looking at the TV and being like, mom, what, what's going on? It's like Lawrence of Arabia is on the television, but it looks like a video game. I'm like, do you notice that? And she's like, no, you don't see that? No. And of course her TV is set to HD sports, but a lot of, a lot of, a lot of this stuff slides by. A lot of people can't, are perfectly satisfied. You know, like there's copycat bands of Edward Sharp that people think is us. And I'm like, how do you think that's us? Mm -hmm. How do you think that slick produced shit is me? How yeah. could you possibly think that when you've heard the Edward Sharp album made of tape, it's all grimy, sounds like a garage. And then you think this other band could possibly be the same thing. And, you know, for me, I, it, it all comes down to, well, people are, are, it's again, it's that thing about the brain. It's just like, you know, the, 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 syn the, the synapses fire and that's the experience. And it really just boils down to that. So I'm, 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 I'm a little, I'm sketched on the idea that, um, that humanity is going to have a, a, a reaction or a revolution against it, except that the revolution against it, I think will get again, come back to this idea of, um, not being in, not being commoditized, not having every one of our experiences commoditized as data and to want to meet in a field or to want to have impromptu, like that's what I'm trying to develop with Edward Sharp right now in my mind is like, how do I do the next, you know, life 3.0 festival that is somehow impromptu, that somehow feels like a uh, happenstance. How do I get back to Marfa? How do I get back to that bus? And the incidental thing of the police being there and then and going around the town. How do I get back to the, to the incidental magic? Because incidentalism, if I had any philosophy, I wanted to sort of like espouse to the world, it's incidentalism. We need those, um, those happenings. Amen. Amen. I think that that's what you hit the nail on the head there for a lot of things in life where, um, we're so heads down. And so in just our own little world, seemingly 
in but we're in work in these inner worlds with other people because we're listening to them as we're playing a game or doing whatever we're doing but we are not looking up and that's where so many relationships just happened you know just they just did you bump it like you know you'd bump into people and the more that you're out there physically in the environment bumping into people the more likely it is that people who are special who will become special to you will happen and if yeah. you don't have that getting out and actually physically present then you're you're starving yourself from those opportunities so i th i love that philosophy of incidentalism or <laughs> or you know like um uh uh, uh active serendipity you know, something active, like that. Active, active serendipity. Yeah, that's a good one. So really uh, quick, really quickly, because I don't want to take up too much of your time. Are you, in, are you, um, as you look at the world, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future? I'll just, the very general question. You know, uh, it's both. I, I, I've developed a cognitive harmonics uh, to compete with my cognitive dissonance. I think that uh, it's both. I, I see, I see it going both ways. I think uh, many people are going to forge many paths, and um, and I do believe in um, in our abilities uh, to choose. You know, there's a lot of, you know, the idea of free will is highly contested, but. Um, I do think that uh, free will exists to the extent that we are able to say uh, no to a thing, but it's contingent. That ability to say no is contingent on being aware that we are constantly um, enmeshed in inertias. And it's like if you have this one behavior that's inertial and you're just doing it sort of mindlessly, something needs to interject on that. And if you can't create that interjection point, then it's almost impossible to say no. You think, oh yeah, I'm having free will. I'm saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm living my life. But if you're in that process of inertia where you're just grabbing your phone or you're just on social media, or it's just sort of a compulsive uh, mechanistic action and it's been completely embedded into your psychology, then you're actually in an inertia and you're not exerting free will. And, um, and so I think that the more conversations like these can be had, the more um, you know, there was a great, uh, movement in like the sixties in France, um, and the name is fucking escaping me, but basically they would create these, um, active serendipities, um, uh, situationalists and they would mm -hmm. go around, um, you know, it's kind of like doing a, uh, you know, what's that thing where people just suddenly start dancing in the middle of the public, whatever that is. Um, you know, those like choreographed impromptu things. Yeah. But, to shake people out of the normality, yeah. to shake people out of like, oh, like to take off the blinders, be like, oh my God, wait, what is happening? You know? And I think that um, the more we can do that, and, and that's really what I want to develop uh, for the next iteration of uh, festival of uh, Edward Sharp, of whatever. Um, so, yeah. Very cool. And, and you're, you touch upon a lot of these things in your newsletter, Bad Guru. And again, I, I really urge people to go check out the New York Times um, uh, article that was featuring Alex just this month, this month, January. So that was very, very cool when I stumbled upon that because you didn't even mention that to me and you're featured in the New York Times. Like fe being featured in the New York Times is a very cool thing. Yeah. And all, all the other stuff. But listen, Alex, 
I really respect you as an artist, always have. Um, the more I learned about you, the even more, more so because I knew you were this multifaceted guy uh, and then this deep thinking guy and then also sharing the candid thoughts of how you had your own evolution as a person from where you came from and the dark places you came from and then how you kind of brought yourself out and where you go forward and that you're constantly pushing yourself to do new things because you're a true artist. So I really respect that deeply. Thanks for joining on the story behind the song today. It was, uh, I, I thought it was fascinating. Yeah, that was fun. Thanks so much for all the questions. It was, it was great to talk. I've grown up some different kind of child. And when the darkness comes, let it inside you. The old darkness is shining. My darkness is shining. That was Alex Ebert, lead singer and songwriter of Edward Sharp and the Magnetic Zeros, giving the story behind the band's signature song, Home and Alex's companion piece, Truth, from his candid and confessional solo album, Alexander. I'm your host, Peter Chotti. You can follow me on Twitter at pchotti, that's C-S, like Sam, A-T-H-Y. And you can send me your feedback and ideas for future interviews to peter at deepcutsmedia.com. For more of the story behind the song, make sure you like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And tune in on the third Monday of every month for new episodes. Also make sure you're following the Consequence Podcast Network to keep up to date with all our series at consequence.net forward slash consequence dash podcast dash network. And as always, thanks for listening to the story behind the song.